Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to the news. It's the end of our week here. Um, and I think all of us, as we uh, see some of the news that's unfolding this week, or some of us anyway, have said to ourselves, as I did today, the only thing that could possibly redeem the last three years of America uh, and American life would be if Donald Trump were to pull off his mask and turn out to be Sasha Baron Cohen pulling a really long con uh, on the American public. That's not what's happening, but both of those people have uh, roles to play in our discussion this week, and that discussion will take place with Rebecca Castellani, scholar of modern literature uh, and many other, and, and of Borat, as it turns out, uh, as well. John Dankosky, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of The Wheelhouse, and next on WNPR, Rich Holland, uh, principal and design director at CoLab in Hartford. Um, in our second segment today, we're going to talk about an HBO drama uh, called Succession. Um, not a star-studded cast, although a very interesting cast, performing a very dark um, take on boardroom struggles, uh, interfamily struggles, the lives of the one percenters of uh, Manhattan. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about protest and about ways in which art, comedy, uh, performance are weaponized uh, to uh, try to express um, various levels of discontent right now with uh, what feels at times like both moral and intellectual bankruptcy. But the guy who grabbed a lot of headlines this week uh, is the Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen. Uh, he also got some of the most incredible free promotion I've ever seen in my life. He is launching a new series. He, of course, of Ali G, uh, Borat, and Bruno. He's, uh, he has managed to fool people again. He's launching a new series on Showtime called Who is America? Um, he has apparently fooled the likes of uh, Dick Cheney and Sarah Palin with impersonations. Um, and right away, they began protesting. And so first, I'm going to start over here with you, uh, Rebecca, because you are apparently a scholar of Borat. Um, and so, I mean, one thing we don't know, I mean, we barely know anything about this series, except that everybody from Sheriff Joe Arpaio to Dick Cheney, everybody who got fooled, who got duped, by Sasha Baron Cohen is now talking about him. Yes. Roy Moore is suing multiple suits against Showtime. Um, Showtime's been teasing this for a while, and people thought it was, the rumor was it was going to be a Kathy Griffin spot. They were teasing a brand new controversial comedy show, and everyone kind of assumed if it's controversial, it's going to be Kathy Griffin. Um, I've been hoping that Sasha Baron Cohen was sitting away somewhere doing something like this, because he's been alarmingly absent, and this is peak comedy. Because he was really, to me, exposing this horrible underbelly of American racism before we had Trump as a president. I mean, mm -hmm. there are some scenes in Borat. Borat's a hysterical movie, but are bone-chillingly real. And I think that I've been waiting for this moment for him to finally skewer all of this ridiculousness because it's just right for this kind of comedy. I mean, this is perfect for him. He loves getting these guys. Wormoy said something like, this is, Alabama doesn't appreciate dishonesty and and bamboozlement and all this. It's like, well, exactly. I hope you understand how it feels now to be a, a citizen of this country, feeling like we've been bamboozled and duped and confused and lied to and manipulated. So I hope that he gets them all. So, John, uh, Borat, 
uh, Bruno, Ali G, Sasha Baron Cohen. They're all everything that NPR is kind of not, right? (laughs) (laughs) Our whole thing is like how much truth can we tell people? Uh, And his whole thing is about getting to a deeper truth using what some people might regard as slightly unethical uh, means. Sarah Palin definitely thinks that these were unethical means. Well, there's a couple different uh, layers to this. As much as I enjoyed Borat and as much as I've enjoyed some of his work, I've always felt I've always felt in comedy and in journalism when when you're punching down it's it's worse than when you're punching up and so I've never liked any comedy that takes on just the everyman and, and puts on a disguise and shows up at, at someone's backyard barbecue and skewers them I don't mind trying to skewer Dick Cheney <laughs> that having been said I mean th- there are some questions about the way he went about the the Sarah Palin interview specifically if he was wearing different uh, guises for different interviews this is one in which supposedly he shows up as as a wounded American war veteran of some ilk. I don't think we've seen pictures yet, unless we have. I've not seen this, and it it really does get on the on the leading edge of how far someone would go in order to get an interview, a fake interview or not, with a celebrity who probably wouldn't give an interview to any legitimate news source. Yeah, it, go ahead. But, but, um, no, I, there's a lot <laughs> of buts in there, I know. There's a lot of buts in yeah. there. Uh, and one of them specifically is, you know, there comes a point where you are a Dick Cheney and you are a Sarah Palin and you are a Donald Trump and, you know, and uh, stuttering John should not be able to get through to get to you. You know, that, that right. there's a whole vetting process of what's going on uh, that, you know, that precludes this happening. I took a look at the the letter that was sent to to Sarah Palin, you know, about this guy, <laughs> some some doctor from uh, from Truth Truth. I can't even Bill say the Wayne word. Bill Wayne Ruddick Jr. But PhD. what was it? It was from Truth, Truth Library. Truth Library, yeah, it's amazing. The collapse of truth and library, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I went to the website, right? Hmm. And if you check out this website, it's like it's a. a a conspiracy theorist daydream. You know, it's it's all about how Hillary did it, et cetera. It played into absolutely everything that these people, in my mind, couldn't actually really believe yes. that it was a shtick that if, they were going with, you, and they dove in. Yeah, if you look at the retweets that Sarah Palin retweets on a daily basis, and you actually dig in and look at the websites that she reads on a daily basis, there would be no reason to be surprised by that. She reads and consumes conspiracy theory material constantly yeah. this is was very consistent in in every way but I, mean, I have seen her tweets yeah. but you know and maybe it's just it's just how far left I am that it's been <laughs> so inconceivable that I that, that it's easier to believe that it's a big con uh, than to believe that it's real well I mean Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen who delights in adding confusion to confusion to more confusion is among other things claiming I think in his letter to, to Sarah Palin that he did not uh, impersonate a wounded American military serviceman, but a United Parcel serviceman. Uh, I don't know whether that's a joke or whether that is anywhere in his actual charade. Their charades piled on top of charades. But John, I'm going to just come back to you because I mean that's uh, uh, what I what I hear a little bit of what uh, Rich is saying is also. Or maybe I'll just say it. You know, conventional means don't seem to work very well. 
Alec Baldwin goes on week after week and does kind of a conventional Trump lampooning. It doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to affect anything. Uh, I mean, as I was watching this whole thing unfold, I share some of your discomfort, but I was also thinking, well, nothing else seems to make any difference at all. Maybe you need somebody who's kind of unscrupulous, which right. which might actually, you know, describe Sasha Baron Cohen. But, but it, will this make any difference either? Mm-hmm. As it plays into uh, even more of a national dialogue that sounds like a conspiracy theory on top of completely outlandish thing. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we also have to remember that there, there are pictures of Kid Rock uh, standing in, in the Oval Office next to mm-hmm. the president of the United States. It, it's not as though it stops at Sasha Baron Cohen making fun of these people and trying to turn it into a different type of television program. President Trump's entire NATO trip has been an unveiling of things as though it was a season of a reality television show. There's no real difference. And so I don't know that it's I don't see the the impact Mm -hmm. that this type of comedy, as uncomfortable as it is, makes that's any different than the Alec Baldwin version of it. So you send your toughest hockey goon out on the ice. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to tip the scales and, no. and, and win the game. Although one of the interesting things, we were talking about this right before we went on, Rebecca. One of the things about um, Sasha Baron Cohen that I've always found fascinating is, you know, particularly through his Ali G character, he's often able to quickly expose the crabbiness or the uncooperativeness or the cluelessness of some famous person that, that he's interviewing. And their, their characteristics come out very quickly because he kind of quickly – goads them into it by appearing to be this inept, easily dismissible, beratable person. Whereas Borat, who is, you know, really kind of horrifying in his own way, (laughs) um, occasionally will call out the softer sides of Americans, too. That movie includes moments where Americans gently say, oh, no, you can't say things like that. You you can't, you know, you can't treat women like that. You And that's just not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of wondering where he's going to go next. We're still talking about this thing that we haven't seen, which is frustrating. But I mean, there are, I think there are, what we've kind of heard is there's multiple characters he's developed. So I think that it's going to enable him to kind of do both of those things he does so well. I mean, exactly as you say with Ali G, he thrives on making people uncomfortable to the point where they don't feel like they're that professionalism anymore and they can suddenly let the professionalism of themselves slip and you see the real person beneath whereas Borat almost was the opposite where he was so affable and silly that you kind of felt bad for him I think and Mm -hmm. and Americans pitied this you know this crazy Mm -hmm. outsider from Kazakhstan wherever and and Mm -hmm. he doesn't know anything about conventional dining room customs we can take a degree of pity on him and then he catches them off guard but yeah he's horrifically prejudiced against gypsies and jews and and exposes you know the people that go i agree with you if we had our way in this you know he's he gets that camaraderie that then allows people to feel comfortable enough to expose themselves and i think he's going to probably have to call on both those characters in, in one trope or another to you know expose different people that he's going after but that ends up being the fascinating thing to me about the people who are suing, right? It's not like he's walking around and, interge- and injecting truth serum into them and, and you know, or, or playing right. the, the Mel Gibson line. It's like, well, you know, he I was you. drunk. But, I mean, you know, he that's who you, you are. You are presenting yourself. You know, no one is putting words in your mouth. Yep. You know, if someone is saying a racist thing and, and you feel this sort of freedom uh, to one-up that, that's about you. Right. You it's know? like the people and, that call somebody out for, you know— a, swimming while black and then suddenly they're all apologetic and always yeah. having a bad day. It's like, no, that's how you really that's are. You, you feel yeah. that way. So you, we might yeah. as well not sugarcoat this in retrospect. But, and I think the the other piece yeah. to, to to add to that, to Colin's statement about that he draws out, you know, through his, you know, screwballness, draws out, you know, pieces of, of warmth and yeah. compassion from people. Uh, and maybe I've just become cynical in my old age, right? Um, but... Uh, when you show your bad side, I accept that as your bad side. 
you know, when you show your really good side, you know, I'm going to hang in a little longer to see if that holds together. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. What were you going to say, John? No, I, I, I think that the issue and the reason I bring up, again, Kid Rock in the Oval Office, Sarah Palin doing uh, conspiracy theories constantly is so so now we'll we'll hear Dick Cheney or Roy Moore saying something that we probably already have heard them say in public in a speech already. That, that's the problem, I think, at the at the at the base of this question of how do you lampoon the current uh, moment in society when everything is right out there already? You're not going to get anything different. We have a president of the United States who literally says something in the morning and says, I didn't say it later in the day. It's really hard to say, well, well, now we got him. Now we got Dick Cheney signing a waterboarding kit. Yeah. That's going to tell us something new about Dick Cheney. Yeah, he does apparently <laughs> autograph some waterboarding equipment. Well, Rich, let me give you the opportunity to play the role of James Hanley uh, here today. Uh, because if James are here, I think he might be pointing out that, you know, one of the things about the, the moment that we're in right now and all of the ways that it's frightening and disturbing is it's eminently monetizable yes. by everybody. Um, I mean, Showtime is launching what they hope is going to be a hit Sasha Baron Cohen uh, series uh, this weekend. I mean, there's a way in which a lot of people make out and not just on one side. Well, and I think that this is also going to dovetail into our next segment, uh, you know, around what sells right Mm -hmm. now. Uh, uh, I don't believe that uh, HBO cares one way or the other about the the moral fiber or the ethical fiber of what they're putting out there. I think they're banking on, you know, on what's going to work and it's going to lean into what worked before. And we're going to take it one step forward to see if that one step forward does any better. Um, I think it's it's all about commerce. Uh, there is a, a great tragedy in that, uh, I believe, and it's a it's a creative tragedy in that uh, business people are walking around considering themselves artists right now, and um, and uh, there's there's a there's a bit of a concern to that. And uh, and um, as part of my recommendation today, I'm going to be talking about um, this book called uh, "The Treason of the Intellectuals." And uh, it was all about uh, the the point in which the creative folks uh, decided to cash in the response that they had that that they are called to have to society, and uh, and uh, re- and give the people what the people want uh, in order to you know to monetize on that, and um, and it's created a tremendous amount of of disarray. Uh, in, in our society, and I think that we're we're seeing it now. Well, I want to I want to throw it back to the, the maybe the big biggest believer here at the table in the work of Sasha Baron Cohen. I believe in Borat. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the argument that Rich is making and the book is making it's a familiar one. Theodore Razak uh, made it uh, years ago that it's it's hard to have a counterculture that doesn't get pretty quickly co opted uh, by the main culture. I don't know. Can uh, Sasha keep himself pure? I don't know. I mean, I think that the other thing we have to keep in mind here is we've turned into a really rapid meme culture where something will suddenly be really funny and you see it everywhere. There's the latest one was a baby picture of Cardi B and now it's on dealerships across America. People are trying to sell cars using Cardi B's image. We dispose of this content so quickly and consume it so quickly that I do worry that the Borat, the, the Borat who he, Sasha Baron Cohen was, the Ali G, that model might not work as well as it did. But I think he's smart enough to know that. I think we haven't seen him for a while because he's probably being very thoughtful about this. So I'm going into a very hopeful. That it's this a is long project. He's talking about this long. is a this is a year uh, project, mm-hmm. and it's a very long con, and yep. that takes some time. That's not too disposable. So I like to think he's he realizes he's got to kind of adapt his model from how from pre-Trump to the post-Trump world. Um, you know, John, it does seem, and this will sort of segue a little bit 
more into what Rich was wanting to talk about. As Trump goes other places, uh, you see images being weaponized in interesting ways. There's uh, the now uh, very familiar baby balloon uh, that was flying in, in London today. And I was fascinated this week because, and I'm going to you because uh, I know music of this era either uh, irritates you profoundly or inspires you <laughs> profoundly. And I think I know which one this song does. But um, in, in order to prepare Britain for uh, Trump's arrival, some of his detractors actually worked to get the song American Idiot by Green Day to be the number one song. Uh, and this is an old song, but you can bomb an algorithm uh, pretty easily these days. Uh, so they, they worked uh, hard on it. I don't know. What, what do you make of something like that? Well, it's a, first of all, it's a very British uh, way of protesting, um, <laughs> which I, I like. But I'll, I'll say that there's a, a more global way of protesting that we're just seeing uh, today, as a matter of fact. About a quarter of a million people on the streets of London uh, holding signs, not unlike the signs that people were holding in Washington and New York and many other cities, uh, including Hartford around the country, uh, on a series of, of protests uh, that have happened over the course of, of the last year and a half or so. And I think that, you know, the baby balloon notwithstanding, that gets an awful lot of attention because it's big and it's, it's kind of funny to look at. What you're really seeing is uh, hundreds of thousands of people carrying signs, some of which say very, very funny things, uh, some of which uh, are artistically very thoughtful, and some of them are very crude and uh, probably aren't all that thoughtful. But it's just the idea of everyone getting together in this way that I don't, I have not seen in my lifetime truly. And that's there's something that's that's feeling new and and fresh about that yeah. because uh, you know it's about 50 years on since the last time we saw big groups of people doing that and it's just a little bit older than me yeah my my, my countdown clock is running uh before pepsico is sponsoring one of these yes yeah. yeah yeah well okay, but, but talk about that i mean so and that and that clearly bothers you <laughs> well no well i don't I'm not, you know that's the big issue that i'm having yeah. john uh is that i don't know if it bothers me if it yeah. if it leads to social change then it doesn't bother me mm -hmm. uh but if what it does is an it anesthetizes us uh, then we've got a problem because we're running out of opportunities for change other than violence. Well, I want to go back to the point you were making before, too, Rich, which is that the distinction between merch and protest gets very thin at a certain point. You were saying that uh, friends of yours who, who are uh, antagonists of Trump were hoping that there would be kind of a desktop version, desktop version of, baby, of the baby yeah. balloon. And talk about these. The, the I didn't even know about this until you emailed uh, us about it um, through a third-party vendor that's using the Walmart oh. website. Oh, this is fabulous. Yeah. Um, it's the uh, – it's – Football jerseys, specifically football jerseys, which I think is hilarious. Uh, they are selling at Walmart uh, Impeach 45. You so know, it's, so it's, the, it's the number 45, yeah. like that's, that's so your So it's the jersey number. number 45, and the player name would be Impeach. So you're walking around with an Impeach 45 shirt that you could buy at Walmart. And there's a onesie, too, for your baby. Really? I yeah, didn't know that. That's stay, awesome. Yeah. Makes you want to have a child. Well, people were calling to boycott Walmart, and then the other side was saying, well, they sell uh -huh. MAGA apparel at Walmart, too. So what's so bad about this? We should be fair and balanced with Walmart's selling of merchandise. Yeah, and, and to Rich's point, yes, everyone will make a dollar off of off of all of these things. Yes. I mean, you know, people will, will buy those shirts. People will buy Colin Kaepernick jerseys. People yep. will buy MAGA hats at the same place. Everyone seems to make a little something off, off of this. And that and that truly is different than yeah. the last time we saw mass movements of protests. So maybe yeah. it doesn't feel as much like a protest. Yeah. It's just people getting together and taking yeah. pictures of, of themselves, no, <laughs> themselves and putting them up on Instagram. And, and to get back to, to the question that you were asking me uh, about um, whether this is good or not, is we now have a model uh, where we can monetize discord. 
you know, that there's value in Discord and we could put money to it. Mm. You know, uh, I'm just curious if the if um, if monetizing unification will have uh, more more benefit. You know, will will we'll be worth more. I think there's no money in unification. I don't think so. I mean, I, and I think we've been monetizing Discord for a long time, having worked for 16 years at a radio station where I either preceded immediately or followed Rush Limbaugh. After a while, I started to realize, boy, if everybody gets along, he's got no act. You know, if people could manage their differences at all, uh, he's got no shtick whatsoever. He's out of business. But, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any danger of that, and he's certainly creating new customers any way he can but every day. But is there a reason – you talked about this last week, Colin, but is there a reason why we're fascinated by Fred Rogers now? Why we have a movie in which people go and, and, and think about and talk about someone from their childhood who actually throughout his entire life and career preached the idea that we should get along, we could understand others, we can be nice, and that's kind of a punk rock thing to do? You know? are, although, are we fascinated enough by Fred Rogers? Yeah, I want to see how it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Why don't we take a break here? Uh, that'll give us some time to have a conversation about uh, this uh, HBO series, which I think we're not in unanimity about. So that'll be interesting and fun, too, after this. Don't want to be an American idiot. Don't want a nation under the new media. Hey, can you hear the sound of hysteria? The subliminal mind of America. All right. We are back. When I say we, I mean Rebecca Castellani, John Dankowski, and Rich Holland are here doing the news, our weekly cultural roundtable. We're now going to talk about a series that I confess that I've gotten hooked on uh, on HBO. And I know other people who've gotten hooked on it don't necessarily feel good about it. Uh, it tells the story of the Roy family, R-O-Y. I think uh, this is meant to evoke Rob Roy a little bit because they're Scottish, but also the word ROI, I think, which is French for king. This is about a um, aging lion of a huge media empire, a little bit Rupert Murdoch, a little bit William Randolph Hearst. He is sick. It's a sort of questionable or doubtful or debatable how sick he actually is. Just before we get going here, I'll just play a little uh, clip for you. It's Logan Roy is played by the great Brian Cox. He's been rushed to the hospital with a cerebral bleed that the family believes uh, he might not survive. Here are his four children, uh, Kendall, Roman, uh, Shaban, better known as Shiv, and Connor, fighting over who should run the company, with the body, of course, still quite warm. Look, the board are offering this to me. I don't actually need your backing. Yeah. You actually really I totally think you do. do. Yeah. Without it, after what Dad did to you, I mean, we could probably take any appointment to court. Jesus, shit, we're talking about court now? You. You know, I didn't even want to talk about this. Remember? Look, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you have against me? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, you want me to actually say? Yes, I do. You lack killer instinct. You're wet. You're green. You're intellectually insecure. You're hey, not emotional enough. You no. have addiction issues. That, that's enough. I don't think all that. I'm just trying to be dad's voice. Bravo. An excellent impression. I just want to say I'm not getting involved. Good. But Shiv's right. I'm not saying I would make a better CEO. That's unsaid. It's not unsaid when you say it. No, I'm saying I'm not saying it. So in fact, it is unsaid. Hey, pal, why don't you go help Willow with her homework? Ouch. Ask Listen, why don't you decide everything? I don't care. I just observe. I'm a UN white helmet. All right? 
you get a little bit of a sense of the way people talk in this series. Um, it is about, uh, as we say, people battling for control uh, of a big media empire. Uh, it's produced by Frank Rich, who also produced Veep. I don't think that's a, a coincidence. And in fact, uh, one of the other um, contributors to it, well, I think sort of the creative driving force behind it is somebody else who's worked on other Armando Iannucci projects. So, uh, Rebecca, I'm going to start with you. Just in general, what did you make of this? So at first blush, I was not very interested. My partner started watching it, and I kind of was in and out of the room. I said, this sounds awful. I get enough of this just through the regular media. I don't want to watch a bunch of white people arguing over really a lot of money. And then when I watched the second episode, I, I said, you know what? This actually seems a little bit more worthy of my interest than I initially thought. So I sat back down and watched the whole thing. And I found that the more time I spent with these characters, the more I understood what the show was trying to do and the more I enjoyed it. I think it is a good show. I don't think it's necessarily a very enjoyable show. I don't <laughs> think it's necessarily very innovative. I do think there is an argument that there's a certain catharsis one can catharsis one can achieve by dealing with a show like this. So on the whole, I do think I will continue watching it. I don't know if it's watching from a place of relaxation or <laughs> happiness. <laughs> um, so you don't look for. First of all, you're doing it. Kind of more millennial style. You're not sure. like waiting for it to drop on Sunday nights. And, you know. Yeah, well, I did, and that's kind of a, a point that I want to make to to the effect of this Netflix and HBO model is that I do find now that I've had to wait a week and I've watched it, I enjoyed it even more because I've had a week to ruminate on it. Where mm -hmm. something that you binge on Netflix is designed for mass fast consumption, where this is really, I think, intended to be watched with a week in between, kind of like Westworld, where you really need almost two weeks to wrap your head around what happens in the previous episode. And even that's not really enough yeah. time. You need yeah. a Reddit forum. <laughs> you need a panel of investigators helping yeah. you figure it out. So this definitely, I think, should be consumed on an episodic basis weekly. All right. Uh, John, how about you? Just well, here's the thing. I, it's hard to like any of the characters in this, and in part, it's because they live in a world that most of us, almost all of us, don't live in, and they act as terribly as possible while within that world, and that becomes very obvious in the first episode. I, I, as I watched more and more into it, I've not watched all the episodes yet, but I've watched five into it, and I, I like it more as I go because you get to know the characters and you get to understand the world in which they live a little bit better so that you can admire some pieces of the writing. The problem is this program, more than any other series that HBO has done recently or Netflix, the first episode does not do anything for me. It actually gets it off to a very poor start because the characters are so incredibly unlikable and do yeah. such horrific things to each other, uh, say such awful things to people who, again, to the point of punching down versus punching up, who are beneath them in the hierarchy it's it's really hard to watch. And so in that way, I don't know, it felt like the anti-HBO show because mm -hmm. I love the HBO shows that are The Sopranos and the and Boardwalk Empire. These are flawed characters that I can love and hate. Mm -hmm. I was just hating these people. And it's hard for me five episodes in to stop hating them enough to love anyone. Let me just ask you uh, one follow-up question about that, though. I mean, one could argue this is the ultimate punching up series in the sense that our disdain and the, whatever disdain the creators have for this family is necessarily upward punching. They are fractions of one percenters. Y yes. Um, <laughs> the, one of the problems with anything that deals with the type of uber wealth and privilege that this series uh, deals with is that no matter how terrible people's lives are, uh, no matter how uh, fractured and awful they seem to one another, 
you still get the sense that they get to get in helicopters and limousines <laughs> and have other people take care of them the rest of the time. And so many people in America actually would like just a fraction of that, could use just a little tiny bit of someone mm. taking care of them on a daily basis and putting up with their crap if they talk <laughs> badly to them. And that's what's awful, that there's even the sense that we have room for people like this in our society nauseates me probably more than, than it should. I, you haven't, I don't think, gotten to the uh, episode six, the most recent one, but there's a way in which that whole helicopter thing uh, comes back to bite uh, one of them in the butt in a very interesting way. But anyway, Rich. That helicopter thing. Well, I'm yeah. going to get to that in a second. <laughs> um, so to a certain extent, um, I kind of have been enjoying one piece of this uh, is uh, I'm getting to uh, watch a bunch of really rich white people cannibalize each other, <laughs> uh, which gives the rest of us an opportunity for a bathroom break. Um, and uh, these these are despicable people. Um, and they're despicable to the point of, of caricature. Uh, and um, and so um, I was curious uh, how good the performances were going to have to be over time, which is what had me hanging in there, to see how good the performances had to be for me to actually want to hang in with, you know, with, you know, with despicable people that are caricatures. Um, and so far, they're pretty interesting. Uh, the part that's got me hanging in is... I have had none of those aspirations that you were talking about, mm. John. The yeah. aspirations of having folks take care of me or or any of that stuff, you know? I just, you know, would would like to have a couple of tender moments every now and then. You know, <laughs> that that would work for me just fine. Although, um, so, I don't know. So I take a look at, at how these folks are living, mm. and it's, it's going into a new culture and a thing that I had no idea about. This helicopter scene, you know, was, is to me the uh, what this show is really about. Mm that these folks are sitting around the table and uh, they cannot connect unless they are playing a game. You know, and that game is played with incredibly outrageous stakes that I don't understand why those stakes have that much meaning. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's not that I don't mm -hmm. understand high stakes, it's like, why does this matter for crying out loud? <laughs> you know, um, so they fly to like this island to play, were they playing baseball? I don't even know they're what playing, they're playing. Yeah, they're, they're playing the game. And the island was game. Long Island, yeah. <laughs> just to make it even like more loaded that they took a helicopter to Long Island, to Long Island and they could yeah. take you know a ferry or anything yeah. else. Three helicopters <laughs> flying through yeah. the city. Rich, yeah, I do want to say, we send a limo to pick up Rebecca every time, yeah. and I've Ouch. always said that you don't want that. I don't uh, want, thank you. you. Yeah, you Can um, I tell you a quick story? Yeah. When, when, uh, when I first met my current wife, I had just fallen in and basically snapped both my wrists, so I was in a cast. And we were going to go out to the theater, right? And uh, and the only way that I knew how to get about, because I was thinking like this chauvinist idiot, was that she couldn't possibly drive us there, was that uh, that I rented a limo. And I told her like, oh, no, I've got it covered. We've got a ride. And she sat me down. And this was early in our relationship. said, I'd love for this relationship to go somewhere, but this kind of nonsense is going to kill it. Right? <laughs> so I really don't buy into it. Yeah, I know. And, and again, just, just to be clear, I'm not saying that that's an aspiration that that I have or that people think about, oh, my God, I wish I could ride in a limo. It's just that whenever you try to lampoon the 1% or the top 0.1%, there's always this sense that for them the stakes are all just made up. It's about whether or not my father likes me. It's about whether or not I'm going to get this position in the company versus another position. But you will still have millions of dollars to fall back on if you wanted yes. to. 
pursue your life as a painter. And that's the, that's the part that separates, obviously, the lives of the rich and famous from the rest. This isn't the first time anyone has tried to present the lives of the rich and famous to us. Yeah. It is interesting that because in some ways they're lampooning the Murdochs, in some ways they're obviously lampooning the Trumps, uh, it's, it's coming to a forefront, and this maybe just isn't the world that I wanted to see right now. Hmm. So one of the things we talked about in, as we were emailing uh, about this, uh, Rebecca, was I, I said that one of my first reactions to this is it really did seem like a pretty conscious attempt to uh, create something that was Shakespearean without being Shakespeare-specific. There's a way in which Logan Roy, the Brian Cox character, is um, uh, is King Lear, although he has more sons than he has daughters. Um, but there's also lots of other ways in which the power struggles here um, do resemble some of the power struggles, struggles we see in Shakespeare. Maybe the thing that's missing, and this goes to points that I guess John and Rich are kind of making, is that even with Macbeth, we see somebody who is uncertain of how he got to the point that he was at. Was he always this kind of horrible person or did fate manipulate him into this position? Um, and he does struggle a bit. We don't see too much of those kinds of compunctions among these people. But but I don't know. Does this uh, ascend to that level for you at all? I mean, it certainly doesn't ascend to the level of Shakespeare, no. but it has Shakespearean elements to it for sure. Um, I think that this idea that Logan Roy, I mean, he's got no real love for his children, and I think that's right to your point that he doesn't love them because they've already been at this position. There has been no, you can't really imagine Roman Roy, who's the, the third youngest son, ever being a good, nice, giving, loving person when he's been growing up being shuttled around to for a casual baseball game on Long Island in a helicopter. He didn't really have that opportunity, I think, to cut his teeth on being a hardworking good human being. And I think that's why the father is so resentful of his children and so unwilling to turn over the kingdom. And I, I think that that's kind of where most of the tension for me arises, because the children, despite all this, are very hungry for their father's love and approval and the love and approval of each other. And I think that's one of the more redeeming qualities to it, is that take all the money out, take all this. This is a family drama and a family struggle. But, but Roman Roman wants love and approval of two guys on the elevator. I mean, this guy yeah, is just Yeah, but I think lost. that's a, because he doesn't have anything yeah. real, and that's the only thing he understands. But yeah. I think if you psycho, psychoanalyze that, it's really due to the fact that he doesn't have a mommy and a daddy who love him. So I, I want to just quickly mention that these um, adult children are played by, for the most part, a, quart a quartet of actors that we don't know particularly well. Uh, Jeremy Strong plays the oldest son, Kendall, the one who's making the biggest move on his uh, father's empire. Uh, we also uh, meet uh, Kieran Culkin as Roman, who's kind of a dissipated Mercutio, uh, less charming than Mercut Mercutio type, who sometimes manages to, manages to tell uncomfortable truths. Uh, there's also a daughter, Shaban, uh, played by an actress named Sarah Snook. Uh, you can tell I'm, I'm mentioning people that you don't see a lot. Um, and oh, and, and who am I forgetting? The, oh, there, there's like a fourth son that we don't see very often who's kind of dropped out of the whole process here. But there's also kind of this, you know, I mean, Shakespeare sometimes will have these kind of rude mechanicals, the ones who speak in prose rather than in verse. And this doesn't really have this, but it has, it has kind of a second tier rich. And it's some of the people who are a little bit outside the circuit of power. And I'm thinking in particular of Tom, played by Matthew McFadden. He is this unctuous, 
uh, would-be fiancé of the oh, daughter, uh, uh, desperately approval-seeking, handed things that he's really not capable of managing. And then this guy who seems to be fascinating all of us, a, much, a younger guy named Greg, a somewhat distant relation of the family, uh, the grandson of Logan's brother, who's just who has no money and is trying to insert himself somehow through some combination uh, of affability and, and clueless compliance that seems to mask uh, uh, maybe a little bit more deviousness than he initially lets on. I'm going to just play a little scene between uh, the two of them. Uh, Tom has been placed in control uh, of a division. He's discovered that there are things going on in that division that uh, are troubling. Uh, and knowing about these things uh, is also troubling. And so he brings in his uh, clueless uh, new relation, Greg, to talk about this. It seems I have been exposed to a virus. Oh, right. Yeah. So, uh, it's a deadly virus. And, uh, <laughs> and now, <laughs> now, <laughs> Forever. It sounds bad. It is bad. It is. And uh, I kind of need to share it, but anyone I talk to, uh, anyone I talk to, I effectively kill. Here. That's the death pet, Greg. Take a look. I, I mean, I feel like I might not like it in the death pit. Your family. There's, Richard, there's a way in which some of this is comedy. Some of this is played for comedy. Um, I don't know how much of it's comedy, but often with those kinds of scenes, like the one between uh, Tom and Greg, I'm laughing. I think uh, it's, it's always more interesting to pay attention to the pilot fish, right? Because what do they have to work with? You know, they have the scraps to work with. So those characters are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. My question is, can you, can you make a movie with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Yeah, you can. <laughs> you know, and there was a great one that mm -hmm. was done, but I don't think that these folks are being utilized yet to that way, but I do certainly see uh, that they have poss possibly the most at risk here and, uh, and the most to gain. So I'm waiting to see how they play out. It's almost like they're setting up a buddy comedy spinoff yeah. of Tom and Greg, where they just get up to <laughs> capers and destroy documents together and evade the FBI. I, just, mm -hmm. I, I mean, John, does any of this work for you as comedy? Well, I, I think actually a lot of those two characters works, work as comedy. I think that there's a, an awful lot that's funny in the show. I think that the character of Greg, who's meant to be comic relief and clearly uh, takes on more of a serious role throughout the course of the episodes is just so unbelievable a character that he, despite whatever family ties he has, would get so close to the seat of power of such a large media empire, shows that, in essence, this has to be a comedy. This has to be a farce. It can't be something we take seriously as a portrait of what corporate America, even family corporate America, might look like, because it's just not realistic. I, so, and that's my problem with it. There's funny stuff in there. It's just that it's it's funny to a point, and then I think I I can't again care about the characters enough because it doesn't seem like a real thing, and it's not enough of a comedy to make me laugh all the time. I, I really wonder if there's something about that degree of wealth that I just don't understand, right? <laughs> because I would expect that that degree of wealth, 
that yep. there would be a lot of holding court that's taking place. But maybe that happens a step lower. Exactly. You know, that at this degree of court, there is no holding. Well, yeah. one thing I, I want to close by just bringing this up. Uh, I've seen a lot of things recently that violate what I always thought was kind of the, the basic principle of all ensemble work, which is that there there does have to be some kind of sympathetic point of entry, you know, that you can do the Mary Tyler Moore show, but you can't do it without Mary Tyler Moore. You can't just have all these other dysfunctional people who work at the TV station. Uh, you need somebody for us to identify with uh, as you meet a, a bunch of other quirky and sometimes uh, a little bit sociopathic characters. But increasingly, on Veep, Rebecca, uh, there's nobody who isn't cynical, disgusting, and dysfunctional. Uh, the same goes for this. You could kind of say that about Ozark. I mention this because Jason Bateman uh, just got an Emmy nomination today for his uh, fabulous work as Marty Bird, uh, the somewhat sociopathic protagonist of that. It used to be that you couldn't sustain interest, and you probably can't sustain John Dankosky's interest indefinitely if you have a bunch of characters where there isn't that place to land. There's no place to land where you can go, oh, this is me, this is me gazing, you know, in a basic emotionally and ethically neutral or maybe even good-hearted way at all these bad-hearted people. But I wonder if we're maybe living in times where <laughs> this kind of yeah, just no. works better. I think that this is the reality. I don't think there is the the entry point in the 1% of the 1%. I don't think there is, you know, a Trump child, maybe, uh, what's, I can't even remember her name. See, there you go. She's not even on the, the radar. The younger Tiffany? Trump. Tiffany Trump. Like, e even Tiffany Trump is not anywhere near someone we can relate to or entry with. So I think that that's very intentional. You're not really supposed to have mm -hmm. anyone besides maybe Cousin Greg, who's coming at it as an outsider and trying to just wade his way through all of the social conduct and information that he shouldn't really have access to but now finds himself in the middle of. I, I'm just, go ahead. No, you go. I just really quickly want to say I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Ozark, though. Mm. It's a show I watched three episodes of. Just couldn't. I, oh, I couldn't. I, I couldn't Ozark. do it anymore because I didn't like the people. I love Ozark. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I watched it all the way through, and I think that the huge difference between, uh, between these stories is – the family's struggle and their desire to really hold together and that there is love there. You know, he had two sets of decisions to make, right? This growing uh, sort of scheming uh, aspect of himself, but he also had decisions to make about his family and he struggled. This movie, I'm seeing nobody struggling with anything but their egos. Mm -hmm. Rich, I think another difference is, I mean, uh, one of the things that, that characterizes succession from the very beginning is this both interior and exterior, and I'm talking about the sets, sense of chilliness, right? It's cold. It's cold outside. They go to play this uh, game in a very cold environment. The interiors are cold, too. I'm talking to you right now because you're yeah. the design guy here. Yeah. You know? But there's a way in which, I mean, Ozark is kind of lush and organic. Mm -hmm. There's like stuff just sprouting out of everywhere in this kind of warm, moist climate. And I think it's not insignificant, and yeah. I think it bears on the stuff you're talking about. And some of the stuff that happens in a thing like Ozark are completely accidental. Nature pay, plays a part in outcomes. Uh, here, none of that is happening. It's all calculated and intentional and, man, and maniacal. It's chess and on three stages. When something does happen that's beyond the character's control, they think so so purely that they can control it. Mm -hmm. And then that frustration of coming against all the money in the world can't stop. If the FAA says you can't fly an airplane, you can't fly an airplane. I mean, that... Shh, John doesn't know yet. Sorry, John. All right. It's not a huge so, spoiler. Yeah, no. uh, we have to take a break right now, so we'll have time for recommendations. We'll do that. We'll be back. I'd like to point out that the Emmys now have a category called Outstanding Structured Reality Program. Aren't we all living in a structured reality program these days? Just not an outstanding one. Today's Structured Reality Program was produced by Betsy Kaplan. 
and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is swimming the English Channel. I just realized I don't get the English Channel on my cable package. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brian Cox. We'll be back on Monday with a look at the weekend's news. And now. Back to Colin. Time to make some recommendations. We'll start over here with Rebecca Castellani. So for the first time yesterday, I went to the No Good Market in Hartford and had a great time. So I highly, highly recommend checking that out. The next one is August 9th. It's on Bartholomew Street in Hartford. Rich Rich is a big supporter. Yeah, it's fabulous. Bunch of great food, music, It's food trucks in particular, Yeah, Yeah. a lot of food trucks. There was a a great cocktail truck. There's a couple jewelers, some local vintage sellers. It was fabulous. So highly recommend that. And then if you're looking for another bleak television series, because <laughs> I know I just love to take all of this in and cry in my room, The Handmaid's Tale Season uh, 2 was really good. I, <laughs> I know that a lot of people don't feel the same way, but I really loved it. I thought in particular, um, I can never pronounce her last name, so I'm not going to try, but Serena Joy, the actress Yvonne Strahovski, I think, it was just knocked it out of the park this season, so I would recommend that. I will totally agree. I, mm-hmm. I think the second season was, was excellent. I just have two, two quick uh, endorsements here. One is for one of my favorite musicians who's actually uh, reimagined one of my all-time favorite records. Uh, back in 1980, uh, the Talking Heads' Remain in Light was, it was groundbreaking, and it was groundbreaking in large part because they adopted the sounds and the textures of West African music, and they, in many people's minds, appropriated them in some ways very appropriately, in some ways not so appropriately, but they made a masterpiece of, of rock and, and Afrobeat. And Angeli Kijo, who is a, a, a brilliant uh, vocalist, has reimagined this record in her own way. And so just hearing Remain in Light in a new light so many years later is really, really worthwhile, and I, I highly recommend it. And my second uh, recommendation very quickly is um, Kittens. If, if anybody <laughs> has been following me on social media, you've seen that I've just recently adopted two newborn kittens who were basically they were left on our on our doorstep. One of the siblings had had already perished, and the the two were uh, malnourished. And, and over the course of the last couple of weeks, uh, spending more time with kittens actually makes you uh, think about the rest of the world in a in a much uh, different way. And I think it's one of the reasons why maybe I don't like Succession so much because the people there are terrible. <laughs> because the kittens don't. But like kittens, kittens are not. But kittens are awesome. So yeah. anyway, I just highly recommend kittens. Yeah, never watched an HBO, HBO series you couldn't justify to kittens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have two recommendations. One I already made. Uh, read Treason of the intellectuals and then reevaluate everything that you consume. Mm. Um, uh, next, uh, I'm going to recommend a piece of music. Uh, download Joan Arbor Trading's Joan Arbor Trading album. Uh, it's black uh, um, feminist liberation the way it was intended to be. It's not at all about proclaiming. It's about, uh, it's about presenting mm. uh, what it means to, to, to be free. I'm going to recommend, uh, I'll do another, it's not exactly bleak, and certainly it falls into the kind of warmer or more organic uh, style of Ozark, except it's more L.A. noir. It's the series uh, on Amazon Prime called Goliath. Uh, In particular, I just finished the second season. Now, let me just say this. The other person in the house felt that the second season of Goliath, which stars Billy Bob Thornton and Nina Arianda, a wonderful actress whom you mainly get to see on stage. She sort of won a hands-down Tony a few years ago for her performance in Venus and Fur. Uh, but she's uh, really terrific. It's fun to see her on the screen. This is L.A. Noir, uh, and Billy Bob Thornton uh, can, of course, excel anybody, anybody on succession in dissipation. Nobody does dissipation the way Billy Bob does. Um, I don't know. 
know. I, I, this the second season also uh, has a fantastically weird, quirky performance. Is there any other kind by Mark Duplass? Um, but it is a little bit like James Elroy and David Lynch got together to make something. So if that would bother you, then don't watch it uh, because it does get a little freaky at times. And then the other thing I'm going to recommend is more uh, of a philosophical nature. So the last couple of weeks I've been going through a little bit of some health problems that uh, turned out fine, and but it sort of brought me to mind or brought into my mind the fact that when you go through something like this, when you go through anything that kind of reminds you that we're just, you know, renting space here on Earth, you you think about all the things that you haven't done. Um, and I feel like I've been a very lucky person. I've got to do a lot of the things that I want to do. But I'm just going to sort of remind all of you as you head into the weekend, as you head into the rest of your summer, as you head into the rest of the year, if there's something, you know, taking voice lessons or going to Japan or learning to roller skate, if there's something that you absolutely intend to get around to doing that would make you feel more in, more complete, maybe taking voice lessons in Japan while you're on roller skates. I don't know what it is. Do it. Just go and do it. Do those things that uh, will make you feel more whole and complete. And do them now because, you know, it's like a carpe diem kind of thing. Not necessarily a, a big revelation or a new philosophy, but I got a big reminder of that. I also got reminded of how many really wonderful friends that I have. Uh, I'm lucky to um, be living with a wonderful woman who has uh, really helped me go through this. And uh, Jim Chapdelaine, also of the nose, is one of those guys that you just pick up the phone and call if you're going through anything. So anyway, it was a little bit scary. I, it's, well, turned out to be all good news. I'm going to tell the story of it at some point when I can figure out how to tell that story. But the main thing I want to leave you guys with is um, that notion anyway. If there's something that would make you feel more complete, make your life feel more complete, you should do it right now. Uh, and to that point, and Wolfie, if, you, if the music's ready, you can bring it up. Uh, last night down in, at the Kate uh, in Old Saybrook, uh, Jill Sobule, who's been a regular visitor to the show, was performing. Uh, this is a song of hers about that whole idea of not waiting too long to do stuff. Thanks. If you're sorry anyway. I'm not getting any younger and I can't go back, can't go back.